knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. that came out called The Straight Story, which was based on a true story. It's about a retired gentleman in his 70s. Uh, His name was Alvin Straight, and he hadn't spoken to his brother in over 10 years because of some big fight that they had, and he heard that his brother had a stroke and that he might die, and so he wants to see his brother one last time. He wants to reconcile with his brother before he dies, to end the silence, to stop the hating, to, to break down those walls of anger that have been going for 10 years. But he has a problem. Uh, He's now past the age of where he can see very well, and so he has no longer a driver's license. Uh, And he lives in Iowa. His brother lives in Wisconsin, which is over 300 miles away. Uh, But he decides, you know what? I got a plan. Uh, I have a riding lawnmower. I have a trailer. And so he attaches this trailer to a riding lawnmower, and he drives it 300 miles to go see his brother in order to reconcile with him. And this movie was loved by a lot of people because it's something that, for the most part, a lot of us really uh, have a desire for. We want to reconcile with those that we have a broken relationship with. And I'm sure that all of us in our life have experienced the conflict that comes in relationship where someone does or says something to you that is so hurtful that it has brings a break into your relationship. And, and maybe like these two brothers, that uh, you're not talking with that person anymore. There, there's some kind of problem that comes with it. And you long for those days before that. You long to get back to that place where you're now reconciled and those issues are, are forgiven and dealt with and no longer hurting your relationship. You know, in Spain, there was a father and son who had a big conflict. The son stole from his father, and then he ran away from home. And his father was brokenhearted, but wanted his son back. And so the next day, he starts searching for his son, and he goes to all the places that he knew his son used to hang out with, all the friends' homes. And he can't find his son, and he's searching for months, and he just wants to let his son know that his son is forgiven, and he can't find him. And so in desperation, he finally takes out a newspaper ad that read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And the story says that on that Saturday, over 800 men named Paco came to that place wanting to be reconciled with their dad, hoping that that newspaper ad was for them. It's a desire that so many people have. You know, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they they lived in a wonderful relationship with God, but they chose to sin. And that sin broke that relationship. It it damaged their relationship with the Lord. And every person after Adam and Eve was born were born with sin. 
We're born with a destroyed relationship. We do not have that relationship with God that they did personally in the garden. And so because of sin, each and every one of us needs to be reconciled with God. The Greek word translated reconciled that we see in the Bible means a change of relationship from hostility to harmony, from discord to concord, from estrangement to friendship, from war to peace. So when you reconcile with someone, it changes the relationship that you have. You go from something that's bad to something that's good. You go from having disharmony and discord to something that is now harmonious. You go from something that's at war to now something that's at peace, something that's estranged to something that now is a friendship once again. Well, because of our sin, we needed to be reconciled with God. We needed to have a change in our relationship status with God. We needed to go from the hostility that we had to the harmony that we desired. We needed to go from the war and the enemy that we were to peace and friendship. Now, the reason I've been speaking about reconciliation is because that is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Our next section in Colossians deals with Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency declared in reconciliation. And in this section, as Paul deals with reconciliation, he's going to share with us five important things in connection with reconciliation to us. First, we're going to see what is in Jesus that enabled him to reconcile us. Second, we're going to see what Jesus did to make reconciliation possible for us. Third, we're going to see why you and I need to be reconciled to begin with. Fourth, we're going to see the purpose of reconciliation. And then fifth, we're going to see what we must do in order for us to be reconciled with God. And so let's start by reading the verses we're going to look at this morning and hopefully learn a lot of this great topic of reconciliation. So Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19, says this, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight." If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul starts off telling us, It pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell. So the first thing that Paul wants us to know is what is it that is in Jesus that enables him to be able to reconcile us to God? This is something very important. How is it that Jesus is capable of doing this wonderful thing of reconciliation? Now, in order to understand what Paul is telling us here about what is in Jesus, we need to understand two words that he uses, what they mean, and those words are fullness and dwell. Paul tells us that in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Now, the Greek word translated fullness means uh, something that is completely filled, to have a measure of completeness without any gap or deficit. 
And so he's speaking about a something fully complete, completely filled. But it's interesting that this word was also used in a theological sense at that time as well. Uh, John Lightfoot says this about the theological definition of this Greek word at that time. This word was a recognized technical term in theology denoting the totality of the divine powers and attributes. And so as Paul uses this Greek word and he's saying this is something that is in Jesus, he's telling us in Jesus all of God's divine power and attributes dwell. Now, this is something that's very important that Paul is highlighting about Jesus, because as I started this letter, I told you there was a lot of different heresies, different false teachings that were entering the church there in Colossae. And one of the main groups that were bringing these false teachings and heresies was a group that called themselves Gnostics. And one of the things that they were teaching is that Jesus was not fully God and he was not fully man. And so Paul wants them to understand, well, wait a second, no, the fullness of God is dwelt in Jesus. William MacDonald said this about the Gnostic heresy at that time. Gnostic heretics taught that Christ was kind of a halfway house to God, a necessary link in the chain, but there were other better links on ahead. Go on from them, they urged, and you will reach the fullness. No, Paul answers, Christ is himself the complete fullness. Now, something interesting about what the Gnostic taught is that basically there were many, they actually had hundreds of uh, intermediaries between God and man, and then Jesus is just one of them. And that's why, you know, McDonald is saying he's just in their mind a link in the chain. Like there's this long chain of intermediaries, uh, and then you have God here and you have us there, and Jesus is just kind of one of those links. He's not God, he's not fully God, he's just one intermediary that we use to get to God, and so he's not where the fullness of God lies. And that's the, the teaching that the Gnostics were bringing, and Paul's saying, no, that's a lie. That's not true at all. He's not just a link in the chain. He's it. He is God, and the fullness of God dwells in him. You don't need to look beyond him. You need to look to him because he is everything that we need. And so Paul wants them to understand this very important truth. So this word fullness means completely filled, the totality of the divine powers and attributes of God. So it's something that speaks of encompassing everything. But I want you to notice something that Paul does. Before this word fullness, he says all the fullness. And it's interesting that he says this because all also is a word that encompasses everything. And so what Paul is doing is he's being purposely redundant here. When he says all the fullness, it would be like saying he is completely, completely full. I'm saying it twice because I don't want you to miss it. I'm being redundant here because I'm combating this heresy that's claiming that Jesus doesn't have all the fullness of God. And so I want to be really clear that we don't miss that Jesus wasn't 50% God. He wasn't 75%. He wasn't 90%. He was 100%. He was completely God. Paul's going to make this same point in chapter 2, verse 9, and maybe the point's a little more clear, and so we'll read that as well. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So notice in this verse, Paul uses the same words, all the fullness, but he clarifies what he's speaking about. It's all the fullness of what? All the fullness of the Godhead. So Paul is saying, hey, he has everything that God has. Why? Because he is God. And where does that reside? In him bodily. 
in his body that he had here on earth. And so Paul's wanting to make very clear, Jesus is fully God. Because this is a foundational truth for Christianity, and it's something that the Gnostics were attacking. But as I mentioned when we started this letter as well, this is one of the biggest attacks against Christianity. This is one of the biggest attacks against Jesus. People want to attack his deity. Because they realize that if I can destroy the fact that Jesus is God, everything else crumbles. Uh, and so that is something that we see throughout every cult, every different religious system. They all want to attack Jesus' deity. They might say something nice about him. He's a good man, a good teacher, a good this or that. But they will not say that he is God. That is the one thing that they seek to undermine. And it was no different in Paul's day. And so Paul wants to make very clear to them and to us, Jesus is fully God. So the fact that Jesus is God is the foundation to everything that we believe. And so if you miss that, you've ultimately missed everything. The second word that we need to understand to this uh, is the word dwell. Paul says, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. This Greek word translated dwell here means to inhabit permanently. It had the idea of taking up a permanent residence. And so Paul, now that he's speaking of Jesus being fully God, he also wants us to realize this is a permanent thing. It dwells in him permanently. And why would he want to emphasize that he wasn't just temporarily God, but that he was permanently God? Well, once again, Paul is combating another heresy that was thrown out in uh, the Colossian believers church that um, Jesus was not God permanently, that God basically just gave this man named Jesus power temporarily, and that is what enabled Jesus to do the miracles that he did, and then he removed that power from him, uh, and then Jesus just died as a regular guy. So you know, it was this idea that Jesus isn't God, that, yeah, well, how do you explain his miracles? Well, we'll explain his miracles by saying that God temporarily gave him power, and then once again removed it, and so that was a lie that was going on at that time, and Paul is wanting us to understand no, Jesus isn't temporarily God. He is permanently God. He has been forever and he will be forever. This is not something that is temporary for him. So the first thing that Paul wants us to see here is what is in Jesus that enabled him to reconcile us? And that is Jesus is fully and permanently God, which enabled him to reconcile us. You see, the fact that Jesus is fully and permanently God is essential for him to be able to reconcile you and me back to himself. It's what gives him the power to do it. It's what gives him the authority to do it. And so if he's not God, then he's not capable of the reconciliation that is necessary between us and God. And so Paul starts with what is in Jesus before he talks about what Jesus did to reconcile. He wants us to understand, well, he's actually capable because of who he is, that he is fully God, permanently God. All right, so now, since we've seen that, the next thing that Paul is going to reveal to us is what Jesus did to make that reconciliation possible here in verse 20. It says this, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So Paul tells us that Jesus reconciled all things to himself, whether things are on earth or things that are in heaven. Now, as we looked at earlier, this word reconcile means to change of relationship from hostility to harmony. 
from discord to concord, from estrangement to friendship, from war to peace. It pictures the total and complete full restoration of relationships that have been broken and disturbed. Well, now here's an interesting thing about reconciliation. Both parties have to be willing to reconcile in order for reconciliation to happen. And I'm sure all of us who have had relationships for any elongated period of time have come to this realization. It takes two for reconciliation to happen. Both parties have to be willing or it's not going to take place. You see, if someone hurts you through something that they say or something that they do, and and there's a break now in your relationship because of the sin that they've committed against you, and you know what, if they say, you know what, we're, we're not, we don't care, I'm not sad, I'm not sorry, I'm not going to ask for your forgiveness, I don't even want a relationship with you. Well, guess what? There's never going to be reconciliation because that side of the party does not want to deal with their sin, does not want to ask for forgiveness, does not want to repent, and so reconciliation is not going to happen. But it could also happen the other way. Someone could sin against you, they could do or say something sinful, and they could hurt and break the relationship, and then they could be broken by it, they could be recognizing how wrong it was, they could come to you and say, I'm so sorry, would you forgive me? I can't believe I did this, you know, I I want your forgiveness, and you could say, I'm never going to forgive you after what you said or after what you did, that was so horrible, and you can just get away from me, I don't want to talk to you again, I don't want to see you again, and so then you would be the one keeping reconciliation from happening. And so both parties have to be willing in order for reconciliation, that relationship to change from hostility to harmony, from war to peace. It can't just be one side because if the other side is still at war, it's not going to work. And so this is something that we need to recognize that both parties have to be willing to do that. So when Paul says that Jesus has reconciled all things to himself, He's not saying that all of Jesus's enemies are now Jesus's friends. What he is saying is Jesus is willing to be friends with all of his enemies. He's willing to reconcile the relationship with everyone who has sinned against him. He's not saying that that's happened yet. He's saying on Jesus' side, he's done everything to make reconciliation possible. He's saying, hey, I'd love to reconcile with you enemies. But as we just noted, in order for reconciliation to happen, both parties have to be willing. It can't just be Jesus is willing and we're not. It has to be Jesus is willing and we are willing for that reconciliation to actually happen. You know, there were two unmarried sisters who had a horrible fight. They stopped speaking to one another, but they were unable to separate from one another due to, you know, the finances that they didn't have. And so they lived in a large, you know, one uh, room. And so they took a, a chalk and they divided the sleeping area in two halves. And, you know, they divided the cooking area and then they divided everything so that they would never have to go into the other sister's area and they never have to speak to one another. And they lived like this for years. Why? Because neither sister was willing to take the first step and seeking to reconcile with the other. And the wonderful thing about our relationship with God is that God has said, I'm going to take the first step towards you. I'm going to say, I want reconciliation, so I'm going to do everything that is necessary for it to happen. I'm going to take that first step and make the offer to you, but in order for it to actually happen, we have to respond by putting our trust and faith in Christ. We have to respond 
to the reconciliation that God has offered to us. So something important for us to understand about reconciliation is that God is willing to reconcile with anyone who is willing to put their forgive, uh, willing to put their trust in Him and ask for His forgiveness. That is what Paul is revealing when he says Jesus has reconciled all things to Himself. But those who choose not to trust Christ, they're choosing ultimately to say, I reject your offer of reconciliation, so therefore they are not reconciled to God. And one of the reasons it's important to understand this is because some people try to take this verse and make it say something that it actually doesn't. That they want to believe that this verse is teaching what is referred to as universalism. Universalism is basically a belief system that everybody is going to be saved. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you do. At the end of the day, everybody is going to be saved by God. And they try to use this verse to back up this unbiblical concept. And they say, see, Jesus reconciled all things to himself. That means everybody's reconciled to Jesus. And so everybody eventually is going to be saved. But that is not what this is speaking about. What this is saying is everyone has the opportunity to be saved. That Jesus has made it possible for everyone to be saved if they're willing to put their trust in him, if they're willing to ask for his forgiveness. He's done it all. He says here, reconciliation is possible for everyone, but only those who receive it and believe in me are actually going to have it. So it's not that everybody's going to be saved. It's an everyone has the opportunity to be saved. And sadly, millions and millions of people reject the wonderful offer that God has offered to them. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Notice it's whoever believes in Jesus. It's not going to perish in hell. Jesus is saying, whoever, I'm, I'm offering it to anybody. No matter what your background, no matter what your sin, no matter who you are and what you've done, whoever will believe in me will be reconciled. But the implication is whoever will not believe in me will not be reconciled and will perish in hell for all eternity. So Jesus has made reconciliation available to everyone. But the next thing that Paul reveals is how did he do it? That's so great that all of us have this available to us, but what did it cost Jesus to make that available to us? Notice what we're told at the end of verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, in order for reconciliation to happen, we have to go from where we are, war, to where we want to be, peace with God. And we're told that Jesus made peace with us. The Greek word translated peace means more than just the absence of strife or the absence of war. It describes a situation where two things come together and there is nothing in between anymore to cause friction. There's no longer a barrier between the two. So Paul is speaking about this piece of joining together those that were separated. Now, in order for Jesus to be able to join us together with him, he had to deal with the thing that was separating us from him to begin with. And the thing that is separating us from Jesus is our sin. And so there's no way that we could be reconciled with that, that being dealt with. There's no way he could have peace with us when the thing that's causing war is our sin. Our sin had to be dealt with in order for reconciliation to actually happen. And so before Jesus could make peace, he had to deal 
with our sin. And Paul tells us how he dealt with our sin through the blood of his cross. Something that we've looked at so many times, something that we remember every month as we think back on communion. Jesus had to sacrifice himself on the cross. He took our sin. He took the judgment of our sin. His blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven, could be dealt with, and the judgment of God could be given on Jesus so it wasn't given on us. And all of that was essential for reconciliation to ever be able to be offered to you and to I. Because the thing that's separating us from God is no longer an issue. Jesus dealt with it. The thing that was keeping us from him is no longer an issue. Jesus dealt with it. The thing that made us at war is no longer there because Jesus dealt with it. So now we can be at peace. Now we can have a relationship with the God that we once couldn't because of our sin. True reconciliation can now happen. Not only did Jesus take the first step towards us in reconciling us, but he did everything. He did everything necessary for reconciliation to happen. He did all the work. All we have to do is put our trust in him and the work he has done for us. So the second thing that Paul reveals to us is what Jesus did to make reconciliation with us possible. Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross to pay for our sins to make reconciliation with us possible. It was his sacrifice on the cross that made it possible for you and I to have the relationship with God that we do if we put our trust in him. The third thing that Paul is going to share with us concerning reconciliation is why you and I need to be reconciled. Oh, it sounds great, but you know, why can't I just live my own life? Why can't I just never have a relationship with God? Why do I need reconciliation with him to begin with? Well, verse 21 tells us, And you who were once, uh, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. Here Paul reveals what you and I were. Speaking of the past, meaning what we were before we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And he lists two things that we were. He could have listed a lot more things that we were, but he feels that these two things are sufficient enough to get the point across of why you and I needed reconciliation. The first thing that Paul tells us about what we were is that we were alienated. The Greek word translated alienated means to be estranged, separated, shut out from one's fellowship, and intimacy. So before you and I accepted Christ, we were alienated from him. We were estranged from him. We were separated from him. We did not have an intimacy, an intimate relationship with him. And the thing that caused us to be alienated from God was our sin. And it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Because if you read Genesis in the very beginning, you recognize, man, they had this wonderful, intimate relationship with God. They walked with him in the cool of the evening. There was nothing that separated them until the day that both of them chose to sin. <coughs> to sin. And when they sinned, <coughs> excuse me, they were kicked out of the garden and that fellowship and intimacy was broken. But it wasn't just broken for them. It was also broken for the entire human race so that everyone born after Adam and Eve was born with sin, this thing that kept us from a relationship with Jesus, kept us 
alienated from God. And so that's the first thing that Paul tells us we were. Hey, you were alienated. You were separated. You had no ability and no relationship with God. And the second thing that Paul tells us is we were enemies in our mind by wicked works. The Greek word translated enemies here describes someone who opposes you, someone who is hostile towards you. By accepting Christ, you and I were enemies of God. We opposed God. We were hostile to God. And the reason that we were hostile was ultimately because of our sin and our rebellion against the Lord. Now, there's a difference between being alienated and being an enemy. You can be alienated from someone. You could be separated from them. You could be estranged and not have an intimate relationship with them. And that doesn't mean that you're necessarily opposed to them. That doesn't mean that you're at war with them. But being an enemy is that. It's not just I'm estranged. It's like I am opposed to you. I am hostile to you. And so Paul wants us to understand we're both alienated and an enemy. We weren't just separated from God. We were worse than that. We were his enemies. We were uh, hostile to him. Now, this is a concept that is hard for some Christians to accept. I think most Christians will accept the fact that we were alienated. Yeah, I understand at one point in time, I didn't have a relationship with God. I can accept that. I can understand that. Um, I can see the point in my life where that changed. And then there are some Christians who don't have a problem with the concept of being God's enemy. They look at their life before, they look at the things that they did, and they said, yeah, I definitely was hostile to God. I definitely was, you know, maybe an atheist, and I was just angry with him, and I wanted nothing to do with him. Or maybe my lifestyle was so extreme, I was a murderer, or I was, you know, some uh, drug-using, whatever, you know. I, there are people who would say, yes, this is uh, the life that I could say, surely I was an enemy of God. But there are some people who are Christians who don't really put themselves in that category. They don't say, well, you know, I didn't do those horrible things that a lot of other people do. And so I can see that I was separated from God. I was alienated, but his enemy, you know, I don't know if I'd really call myself that. And the thing that I love that Paul does here is he shares something that really kind of nails and convicts us all. If you're in that boat where you're thinking, I was a pretty good guy or a girl, and I didn't really do that many bad things, I wasn't really God's enemy, notice what Paul tells us about how we were enemies. He says, you were enemies in your mind by wicked works. You see, we weren't just God's enemies based on what we did, based on our actions. It was also based on what we thought, based on what was in our minds. And so Paul wants us to realize that. You know, if you think, well, I'm good because I haven't done this certain thing, I haven't done that certain sinful thing, he says, well, you know, you're not just judged by the outward actions, you're also judged by what's in your mind. Jesus said the same thing on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders you will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus goes on to say, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is communicating to us is God doesn't just judge the actions, he also judges the heart. So if you're someone who's saying, well, I've never murdered anybody, 
And so, you know what? I don't really consider myself in that category of God's enemy. Well, then Jesus would turn around and say, have you ever been angry? Have you ever been angry with someone? Because in your heart then, I see you as a murderer. You murder them in your heart, and so you are guilty. Another person might say, well, I never committed adultery. I've been faithful to my spouse. Jesus would turn around and say, have you ever lusted after someone in your heart? Well, yes. Okay, well, then you are guilty of adultery in your heart. You might not have done it physically, but you've done it in your mind, in your heart. And so Jesus would bring and Paul would bring the blanket statement to all of us of, yes, we were enemies because we are all guilty of doing horrible things even if it was just in our thoughts or in our hearts, because to God, he still sees that as sin. And so we were completely alienated from God, separated from him. We were his enemy. Because of that, we see the third thing that Paul reveals to us. Why did we need to be reconciled? We needed to be reconciled to God because we were alienated from God and enemies of God. We needed to go from being hostile to being in harmony. We needed to go from being at war to being at peace. And Jesus made that possible. Through his sacrifice on the cross, he made it possible for that relationship status to change because he dealt with the problem, which is our sin. Well, now that Paul's revealed why we were in need of reconciliation, he's going to go back again to how we were reconciled. He's going to add something to our first point that it's an important thing to note. Notice what he says at the end of verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through his death. Notice that Paul is emphasizing the reconciliation was in the body of Jesus' flesh through his death. Now back in verse 19, Paul was redundant when he said all the fullness. He's saying basically the same thing twice to help us realize Jesus was 100% God. And now he's doing a similar thing. He's being redundant again because body and flesh are basically speaking of the same thing. And so he's being redundant saying the body and the flesh of Jesus. And the reason he's being redundant is because now he wants us to understand something else about Jesus. Not only was he 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And he wants to emphasize that because once again, he is combating heresy that was coming in to the church because some were saying, yeah, we'll hold to the fact that Jesus was completely God, sure, but we will not hold to the fact that he was completely man. And so this was another heresy that was coming in, a heresy that all flesh was evil. That was the mindset that was there. And since all flesh was evil, according to them, Jesus could have never taken on a human body because that would have made him this horrible sinner. And so they kind of said that Jesus was more like a phantom. He didn't even leave footprints. He he looked like he had human form, but he didn't really. He wasn't really a man. He didn't really take on the form of a man. It just kind of looked like it. So he was God, and he just kind of had this this image of what he took on, but it wasn't real. And so Paul's saying, no, he was 100% God, and in his body and flesh, let's be redundant, He was 100% man as well, and he died in that human body. That human body was what deceased, what died. That was what was crucified on the cross. But this is important because in order for Jesus to take our place, in order for him to pay for our sins, he had to become one of us. 
He became one of us and he died in our place, suffered what we should have suffered. So him being fully man was essential for him being able to reconcile us back to God. So I want to add something to our first point. Jesus is fully and permanently God and became fully man, which enabled him to have the power, authority, and personal connection to us to reconcile us to God. So adding that reality of he's also fully man, which gave him that personal connection to bring reconciliation. The fourth thing that Paul is going to reveal to us concerning reconciliation is the purpose. What was the kind of the ultimate goal? Do we see all these things that Jesus was and that Jesus did and our need for it? But now what was the goal, the purpose of him doing this? Verse 22 at the end tells us, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The ultimate purpose that Jesus had and all that he did and all the sacrifice on the cross that he made for you and I was that he could present us in three very important ways to God the Father. He could present us holy, he could present us blameless and above reproach. And to understand what the significance of that is, we need to understand, well, what are those words? What do they mean? What is it that that means for us? What did Jesus do for us? Well, let's look at these words. The first word is holy, which means to be set apart from sin and to God. Well, here's the reality. Before you and I accepted Christ, we were unholy. We were not set apart from sin. We were just horrible sinners. We were not set apart to God. We were separated from God. And so this was not something that would ever be categorized as you and me, holy. No, we were unholy people. And here's the reality. There's nothing that we could have done, as we saw through the book of Romans, to make ourselves holy. You know, we might desire it. We might want it. Oh, I want to be set apart from sin. I want to be set apart to God. I want a relationship with God. There was nothing in ourselves, no work that we could do, that would ever enable us to be holy. We couldn't have that status on our own, but we do. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which enabled us to be reconciled with him, has given us this wonderful status of being holy. We are now actually set apart from sin. Why? Because it's been dealt with. And we're set apart for God. Why? Because now we have a relationship with him. Even though we once were separate and enemies, we've been reconciled through the blood of of the cross. The second word is blameless. This Greek word means without spot or blemish. This is a word that's used for the temple sacrifices, and they needed to be without spot or blemish in order for that sacrifice to be uh, received by the Lord. Well, you know what? You and I were born sinful. We had plenty to be blamed for. We were full of spot. We were full of blemish. That was you and I. That was us because of our sin. And as far as we were, there, there was nothing that we could do. Oh, I don't want that anymore. Tough. There's nothing you can do to get away from that. You are to be blamed because you are a sinner. But you know what? Because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we can be blameless before God. The Bible tells us, though, our sin was a scarlet, deep red. It shall now be made white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. We are blamed 
Because we are spotted and we are full of all sorts of sin, but yet because Jesus dealt with it, we can be seen by God as blameless, as white as snow. A wonderful thing. The third word that we see here that Paul uses is above reproach. I love this word. It means something that cannot be called into account or accused free from accusation. This was a legal term that meant that you could not have any charges brought against you. And I love that because we're told that, hey, we are now in this category, but that's not us. I mean, you and I are guilty. We're guilty sinners. We've done these horrible things. We deserve to be judged. We deserve to be charged. We deserve to have the punishment. But because of what Jesus did, because he took that punishment for us, Now we're above reproach. Now the charge won't come against us. Now it's already been dealt with. It's already been paid. And so we can stand before the judge and we're not going to be accused of sin because it's been forgiven and it's been paid for. And the only reason that we're above reproach is because of what Jesus did. That There's no work that we could do. Well, I'm going to work my way to the point where I don't have to now pay for this, that I'm no longer guilty. Well, I'm always going to be guilty. The only reason I can escape my guilt is because Jesus took that on the cross for me. Now, something important to understand is that the only way that God could be reconciled with us, the only way he could go from that relationship of war to peace is if he did this, as if he made us holy, blameless, and above reproach. He can't have a relationship with us without it. This was essential for him to be able to have reconciliation. He had to do this. We had to be holy, blameless, above reproach in order for God not to be our judge, but instead be our father, our friend, have a relationship with him. So Jesus had to do this for us, and he did it by sacrificing himself on the cross. So the fourth thing that Paul reveals to us is the purpose of, of reconciliation, we were reconciled so that Jesus could make us holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. The fifth and final thing that Paul brings up here about uh, being reconciled is what must we do to be reconciled? And we see this in verse 23. It says this, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul has revealed many wonderful truths about reconciliation, about who Jesus is, what's in him, that he's fully God, fully man, that enabled him to do it. How he did it, by dying on the cross, why we need it, because of our uh, alienation, because we are enemies of God. But now he brings it down to, what is it that we have to do to get it? This reconciliation is such a privilege, it's such a wonderful thing to be in a relationship with God, not as his enemy, but as his friend. Well, how do we receive it? Well, the only way that you and I can be reconciled to God is if we have faith in the gospel. Faith in the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That he is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. So when it speaks of faith in the gospel, it's speaking of faith in the message of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done for you and for me. But what we need to realize is Jesus did all the work. All the work necessary for you and I to be reconciled, Jesus accomplished. 
So there's nothing that we need to add to it. It's like, well, Jesus did some of it, and then we got to do our part as well, and then we can reconcile together, because that's kind of our concept within reconciliation and marriage or reconciliation and other things. It's kind of like, okay, well, you've done your part, and I'll do my part, and you've said you're sorry, and, you know, and I'll show forgiveness or whatever. But ultimately, Jesus has done it all. He's just saying, all I need of you is to put your trust in what I've done. Put your trust in me. Put your trust in the work that I've done. You don't have to work your way to it. I've done all the work. What you need to do is just put your faith in what I've done. So Paul's final challenge in regard to reconciliation is for us to continue in the faith, to be grounded and steadfast in it, to not be moved away from the hope of the gospel, to realize our reconciliation is completely based on our faith in what Jesus did for us. Now, this is so important because, remember, there are these attacks and these lies and these heresies and these false teachings coming into Colossae, and they're trying to undermine the truth of the gospel, that it's faith alone in Christ alone that will save me. No, no, no. Yeah, you can put your faith in Jesus, but you need more than him. He's not enough. He's not fully God. You, you, you got to look beyond Jesus or, or your works are going to have to be added to it or, or some other thing is going to have to be connected to that in order for you to be saved. And so Paul is saying, no, what you need to do is just continue in the faith. You're being told to abandon the faith, and I'm telling you, continue in it. That gospel message that you first believed, that first came to you, the gospel message that Paul says that I preach, that I'm a minister of, That's what you need to hold to. That's what you need to believe. Abandon these lies that have come to you and realize the foundational truth. Faith in Christ alone is what will save you, is what will reconcile you to the Lord. Continue in that. Don't buy the lie that says you need more. Don't buy the lie that says you need something else. Jesus is enough. He's sufficient. He's supreme. He's done it all. We just need to place our faith in Him and we will be reconciled. So the fifth thing that Paul reveals to us concerning reconciliation is is what is it that you and I need to do? In order for us to be reconciled with God, we must put our faith in the gospel of Jesus. When we do, all the wonderful blessings come. We go from enemy to friend. And even more than that, we're not just friends of God, we're children of God. He adopts us into his family. We go from, you know, someone who was just uh, totally against him to now in complete harmony with him. And it's a wonderful, wonderful reality. You know, this Thursday is Thanksgiving. Sadly, we don't take the whole year to really focus on what we're thankful for. But usually people in this time of year will kind of take a time to say, you know, what is it I'm truly thankful for? And I want to encourage you Even this morning, we'll take a little time, but throughout this week as well, as you think about, you know, what is it that I'm thankful for? Think about Jesus. Think about what he has done. Think about the reconciliation that he has made possible for you. But I also want you to think about just who Jesus is. Sometimes we just miss how much the Bible actually shares with us about who he is to us and how great that is for us. And I came across this little... um, I guess you could call it an article that kind of showed who Jesus is to different people. And I just want to close reading it so that you get just a bigger sense of Jesus and who he is. And then I would like us to just finish after that, just taking some time uh, just to thank him 
for what he's done for us and who he is to us. And this is what it says. To the artist, Jesus is the one altogether lovely. To the architect, he is the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, he's the bright and morning star. To the baker, he's the living bread. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he's the life. To the builder, he's the sure foundation. To the carpenter, he's the door. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the educator, he's the great teacher. To the engineer, he's the new and living way. To the florist, he's the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the horticulturist, he's the true vine. To the judge, he's the righteous judge. To the jeweler, he's the pearl of great price. To the lawyer, he's the advocate. To the journalist, he's the good news. To the musician, uh, musician, he is the horn of our salvation. To the philanthropist, he is the unspeakable gift. To the philosopher, he is the wisdom of God. To the preacher, he's the living word of God. To rulers and world leaders, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. To the sculptor, he's the living stone. To the servant, he's the good master. To the diplomat, he is the desire of all nations. To the student, he is the incarnate truth. To the theologian, he is the author and finisher of our faith. To the shepherd, he's the lamb of God. To the Jew, he's the son of Abraham. And to the Gentile, he's the son of man. To the sinner, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To the worried, he's the prince of peace. To the downtrodden, he's a friend of sinners. To the sick, he's the great physician. To the thirsty, he is the water of life. To the Christian, he is our savior, redeemer, Lord, and friend.